Section twenty of Expository Thoughts on the Gospel of Saint John, Volume One, by J. C. Ryle. Chapter five, verses one to fifteen, the misery caused by sin, the compassion of Christ, the lessons that recovery should teach. John, chapter five, verses one to fifteen. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withering, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool, and troubled the water. Whosoever then first after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And a certain man was there, which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. When Jesus saw him lie, and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man, when the water is troubled, to put me into the pool, but while I am coming another steppeth down before me. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made whole, and he took up his bed and walked, and on the same day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, It is the Sabbath day, it is not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. He answered them, He that made me whole, the same said unto me, Take up thy bed, and walk. Then they asked him, what man is that which said unto thee, Take up thy bed and walk? And he that was healed wist not who it was, for Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. Afterward Jesus findeth him in the temple, and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole, sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus which had made him whole. We have in this passage one of the few miracles of Christ which St. John records. Like every other miracle in this gospel, it is described with great minuteness and particularity. And like more than one other miracle, it leads on to a full discourse of singularly deep instruction. We are taught, for one thing, in this passage, what misery sin has brought into the world. We read of a man who had been ill for no less than thirty-eight years. For eight and thirty weary summers and winters he had endured pain and infirmity. He had seen others healed at the waters of Bethesda, and going to their homes rejoicing. But for him there had been no healing. Friendless, helpless, and hopeless, he lay near the wonder-working waters, but derived no benefit from them. Year after year passed away, and left him still uncured. No relief or change for the better seemed likely to come, except from the grave. When we read of cases of sickness like this, we should remember how deeply we ought to hate sin. Sin was the original root, and cause, and fountain of every disease in the world. God did not create man to be full of aches and pains and infirmities. These things are the fruits of the fall. There would have been no sickness if there had been no sin. No greater proof can be shown of man's inbred unbelief than his carelessness about sin. Fools, says the wise men, make a mock at sin. 
Proverbs chapter 14 verse 9. Thousands delight in things which are positively evil, and run greedily after that which is downright poison. They love that which God abhors, and dislike that which God loves. They are like the madman, who loves his enemies and hates his friends. Their eyes are blinded. Surely if men would only look at hospitals and infirmities, and think what havoc sin has made on this earth, they would never take pleasure in sin as they do. Well may we be told to pray for the coming of God's kingdom. Well may we be told to long for the second advent of Jesus Christ. Then, and not till then, shall there be no more curse in the earth, no more suffering, no more sorrow, and no more sin. Tears shall be wiped from the faces of all who love Christ's appearing when their Master returns. Weakness and infirmity shall all pass away. Hope deferred shall no longer make hearts sick. There will be no chronic invalids and incurable cases when Christ has renewed this earth. We are taught, for another thing, in this passage, how great is the mercy and compassion of Christ. He saw the poor sufferer lying in the crowd. Neglected, overlooked, and forgotten in the great multitude, he was observed by the all-seeing eyes of Christ. He knew, full well, by his divine knowledge, how long he had been in that case, and pitied him. He spoke to him unexpectedly, with words of gracious sympathy. He healed him by miraculous power, at once and without tedious delay, and sent him home rejoicing. This is just one among many examples of our Lord Jesus Christ's kindness and compassion. He is full of undeserved, unexpected, abounding love towards man. He delighteth in mercy. Micah chapter 7, verse 18. He is far more ready to save than man is to be saved, far more willing to do good than man is to receive it. No one ever need be afraid of beginning the life of a true Christian, if he feels disposed to begin. Let him not hang back and delay, under the vain idea that Christ is not willing to receive him. Let him come boldly and trust confidently. He that healed the cripple at Bethesda is still the same. We are taught, lastly, the lesson that recovery from sickness ought to impress upon us. That lesson is contained in the solemn words which our Saviour addressed to the man he had cured, Sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. Every sickness and sorrow is the voice of God speaking to us. Each has its peculiar message. Happy are they who have an eye to see God's hand and an ear to hear His voice in all that happens to them. Nothing in this world happens by chance. And as it is with sickness, so it is with recovery. Renewed health should send us back to our post in the world with a deeper hatred of sin, a more thorough watchfulness over our own ways, and a more constant purpose of mind to live to God. Far too often the excitement and novelty of returning health tempt us to forget the vows and intentions of the sick-room. There are spiritual dangers attending a recovery. Well would it be for us all, after illness, to grave these words on our hearts. Let me sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto me. Let us leave the passage with grateful hearts, and bless God that we have such a gospel and such a Saviour as the Bible reveals. Are we ever sick and ill? Let us remember that Christ sees, and knows, and can heal, if he thinks fit. 
are we ever in trouble let us hear in our trouble the voice of god and learn to hate sin more notes john chapter five verses one to fifteen verse one after this literally translated this would be after these things some think that when st john is telling some event which follows immediately after the last thing narrated he uses the expression after this thing as john chapter two verse twelve but that when there has been an interval of time he uses the expression after these things if this be correct we must suppose that some space of time elapsed between the healing of the nobleman's son and the visit to jerusalem recorded in this chapter a feast of the jews there is nothing to show what feast this was most commentators think it was the passover many however think it was the feast of pentecost some few say it was the feast of tabernacles some the feast of purim and some the feast of the dedication each view has its advocates and the question will probably never be settled an argument in favor of the passover is the fact that none of the five jewish feasts were so regularly attended by devout jews as the passover an argument against it is the fact that on three other occasions when the feast of the passover is mentioned in st john he carefully specifies it by name and one would naturally expect that it would be named here the matter is really of no peculiar importance in one point of view only is it interesting if the feast was the passover it proves that there were four passovers during the period of our lord's ministry on earth st john mentions three by name besides this feast john chapter two verse twenty three chapter six verse four chapter twelve verse one this would make it certain that our lord's ministry lasted three full years or at any rate must have begun with a passover and ended with a passover if the feast was not the passover we have no proof that his ministry lasted longer than between two and three years see notes on john chapter two verse thirteen the expression a feast of the jews is one of many incidental evidences that john wrote specially for the use of gentile converts and that he thought it needful for their benefit to explain jewish ordinances jesus went up the frequency of our lord's attendance at jewish feasts and the respect he showed for mosaic ordinances should always be noticed they were appointed by god and so long as they lasted he gave them honor it is an important proof to us that the unworthiness of ministers is no reason for neglecting god's ordinances such as baptism and the lord's supper the benefit we receive from ordinances and sacraments does not depend on the character of those who administer them but on the state of our own souls the priests and officers of the temple in our lord's time were probably very unworthy persons but that did not prevent our lord honoring the temple ordinances and feasts it does not however follow from this that we should be justified in habitually going to hear false doctrine preached our lord never did this let it be noted that none of the four gospel writers speak so much of our lord's doings in judea and jerusalem as st john does verse two there is at jerusalem these words it is thought show that jerusalem was yet standing and not taken and destroyed by the romans when john wrote his gospel otherwise it is argued he would have said there was at jerusalem by the sheep market a pool nothing certain is known about this pool or its precise situation modern travellers have professed to point out where it was 
but there is little ground for determining the matter except conjecture and tradition after all the changes of eighteen centuries points like these are almost incapable of a satisfactory solution there is no place in the world perhaps where it is so difficult to settle anything decidedly about ancient buildings and sites as jerusalem some propose to render the expression sheep market the sheep gate because of nehemiah chapter three verse one but we really have no certain ground for either expression called in the hebrew tongue bethesda the word bethesda according to cruden means house of effusion or house of pity or mercy it is not mentioned anywhere else in the bible the mention of the hebrew tongue shows again that john did not write for jews so much as gentiles having five porches these porches were probably covered arcades piazzas colonnades or verandas open at one side to the air but protected against the sun or rain overhead in a hot country like palestine such buildings are very necessary verse three in these lay a great multitude the context seems to show that the multitude were assembled at this particular feast in this place expecting a certain miracle to be wrought which only took place at this particular time of the year impotent folk this expression evidently does not mean paralytic people but merely people who were sick and ill the mention of blind halt withered shows this moving of the water this moving must have been something that could be seen and observed by persons standing by or looking on there was no virtue or healing element in the water until the movement took place verse four for an angel went down etc the thing we are here told is very curious there is nothing like it in the bible josephus the jewish writer does not mention it the simplest view is that it was a standing miracle wrought once every year as cyril says or at any rate at some special season only by god's appointment to keep the jews in mind of the wonderful works that had been done for them in time past and to remind them that the god of miracles was unchanged but when this singular miracle first began on what occasion it began why we never hear anything else about it in what way the angel came down are questions which cannot be answered that angels did interpose in a miraculous manner in the days of the new testament is perfectly clear from many instances in the gospels and acts that the jews themselves had strong faith in the interposition of angels on certain occasions is clear from the account of the vision of zacharias when we are simply told that the people perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple luke chapter one verse twenty two that from the days of malachi when inspiration ceased god may have seen it good to keep up in the jewish mind a faith in unseen things by the grant of a standing miracle is a very probable opinion the wisest course is to take the passage as we find it and to believe though we cannot explain all other attempts to get over the difficulties of the passage are thoroughly unsatisfactory to condemn the passage as not genuine is a lazy way of cutting the knot and not at all clearly warranted by the authority of the manuscripts to say that st john only used the popular language of the jews in describing the miracle and did not really believe it himself is to say the least irreverent and profane to suppose as hammond and others have done that the angel only means a common human messenger sent by the priests and that the healing efficacy of the water arose from the blood of the many sacrifices which drained into the pool of bethesda at the passover feast 
or to suppose as others that bethesda was a pool where sacrifices were washed before they were offered are all entirely gratuitous assumptions and do not get over the main difficulty there is no proof that the blood of the sacrifices did drain into the pool there is no proof that the blood would give the water any healing virtue there is no proof as lightfoot shows that sacrifices were washed at all see lightfoot's exercitations on john on this passage moreover this hypothesis would not account for only one person being healed every time the waters were troubled or for st john's mention of the angel troubling the waters here as in many other instances the simplest view and the one which involves the fewest difficulties is to take the passage as we find it and to interpret it as narrating an actual fact viz a standing miracle which actually was literally wrought at a certain season perhaps every year after all there is no more real difficulty in the account before us than in the history of our lord's temptation in the wilderness the various cases of satanic possession or the release of peter from prison by an angel once admit the existence of angels their ministry on earth and the possibility of their interposition to carry out god's designs and there is nothing that ought to stumble us in the passage the true secret of some of the objections to it is the modern tendency to regard all miracles as useless lumber which must be thrown overboard if possible and cast out of the sacred narrative on every occasion against this tendency we must watch and be on our guard rollock remarks the jewish people at this time was in a great state of confusion and the presence of god was in great measure withdrawn from it the prophets whom god had been accustomed to raise up for extraordinary purposes were no longer given to the jews therefore god that he might not appear altogether to cast off his people was willing to heal some miraculously and in an extraordinary way in order that he might testify to the world that the nation was not yet entirely rejected brentius and calvin say much the same poole thinks that this miracle only began a little before the birth of christ as a figure of him being about to come who was to be a fountain opened to the house of david lightfoot takes the same view troubled the water this means no doubt disturbed agitated stirred up the waters of the pool there is no reason for supposing that the angel visibly appeared in doing this it is enough to suppose that at a certain hour there was a sudden stir and agitation of the waters immediately after which they possessed the miraculous virtue of healing just as the waters that merah became sweet immediately after moses cast the tree into them exodus chapter fifteen verse twenty five whosoever then first this shows that the whole affair was miraculous in no other supposition can we account for only one person being healed after the troubling of the water that only one was healed is plain i think from the wording of the passage of whatever disease he had these words would be more literally translated with whatsoever disease he was held bengal thinks that the use of the past tense throughout this verse shows that the miracle had ceased when john wrote he used to go down used to trouble the waters etc tertullian declares expressly that the miracle ceased from the time that the jews rejected christ verse five infirmity thirty and eight years this means the length of time during which the sick man had been ill how old he was we do not know baxter remarks 
how great a mercy it is to live eight and thirty years under god's wholesome discipline o oh my god i thank thee for the like discipline of eight and fifty years how safe a life is this compared to one spent in full prosperity and pleasure those who see typical and abstruse meanings in all the least details of the narratives of scriptures observe that thirty-eight years was the exact time of israel's wandering in the wilderness they see in the sick man helpless and hopeless till christ came a type of the jewish church the pool of bethesda is old testament religion the small benefit it conferred viz only healing one at a time represents the narrow and limited benefit which judaism conferred on mankind the merciful interference of christ on the sick man's behalf represents the bringing in of the gospel for all the world these are pious thoughts but it may well be doubted whether there is any warrant for them the notions that the pool of bethesda was a type of baptism and the five porches typical of the five books of the law or the five wounds of christ appear to me mere ingenious inventions of man without any solid foundation yet chrysostom augustine theophylact euthymius burgon wordsworth and many others maintain them those who wish to see a full reply to the theory that the miracle at the pool of bethesda is a typical proof of the doctrine of baptismal regeneration will find it in gomarus the dutch divine he takes up bellamine's argument on the subject and answers him completely verse six when jesus saw knew long time we need not doubt that our lord knew this man's history by that divine knowledge which as god he possessed of all things in heaven and earth to suppose that he ascertained by inquiry the state of his case before speaking to him is a weak meagre and frigid interpretation as a practical truth it is a most comfortable doctrine that jesus knows every sickness and disease and all its weary history nothing is hid from him he said unto him this is an example of our lord being the first to speak and begin conversation as he did with the woman of samaria john chapter four verse seven unasked unsolicited unexpectedly he mercifully addresses the sick man no doubt he always begins in man's heart before man begins with him but he does all things as a sovereign according to his own will and it is not always that we see him taking the first step so entirely of himself as we do here wilt thou be made whole the english language here fails to give the full force of the greek it means hast thou a will dost thou wish dost thou desire to be made whole the question was perhaps meant to awaken desire and expectation in the man and to prepare him in some sense for the blessing about to be bestowed on him is not this to take a spiritual view the very language that christ is continually addressing to every man and woman who hears his gospel he sees us in a wretched miserable sin-sick condition the only thing he asks us is hast thou any wish to be saved verse seven the impotent man answered him sir the word rendered sir is the same as that more commonly rendered lord it is the same that is rendered sir all through the fourth chapter in the history of the samaritan woman i have no man put me into the pool this is no doubt mentioned as an intentional proof of the heartlessness and unkindness of human nature think of a poor invalid waiting for years by the water and having not a single friend to help him 
the longer we live on earth the more we shall find that it is a selfish world and that the sick and afflicted have few real friends in time of need the poor is hated even of his neighbor proverbs chapter fourteen verse twenty christ is the only unfailing friend of the friendless and helper of the helpless verse eight rise take up thy bed and walk here as in other similar cases it is evident that miraculous healing power went forth with the words of our lord thus stretch forth thy hand mark chapter three verse five go show yourself to the priests luke chapter seventeen verse fourteen commands like these tested the faith and obedience of those to whom they were given how could they possibly do the things commanded if impotent like the man before us where the use of doing them if still covered with leprosy like the ten lepers but it was precisely in the act of obedience that the blessing came the whole power is christ but he loves to make us exert ourselves and show our obedience and faith augustine finds in the command take up thy bed an exhortation to the love of our neighbors because we are to bear one another's burdens and in the command walk an exhortation to love god such allegorizing appears to me very unwarrantable and calculated to bring the bible into contempt as a book that can be made to mean anything verse nine immediately made whole walked here we see the reality of the miracle wrought nothing but divine power could enable one who had been a cripple for so many years to move his limbs and carry a burden all at once but it was as easy to our lord to give immediate strength as it was to create muscles nerves and sinews in the day that adam was made when we are told that the man took up his bed we must remember that this probably was nothing more than a light mattress carpet or thick cloth such as is commonly used in hot countries for sleeping on verse ten the jews here as in many places in st john's gospel the expression the jews when used of the jews at jerusalem means the leaders of the people elders rulers and scribes it does not mean vaguely the jewish crowd around our lord but the representatives of the whole nation the heads of israel at the time it is not lawful carry bed in support of this charge of unlawfulness the jews would allege not merely the general law of the fourth commandment but the special passages in nehemiah and jeremiah about bearing no burden on the sabbath day nehemiah chapter thirteen verse nineteen jeremiah chapter seventeen verse twenty one but they could not have proved that these passages applied to the case of the man before them for a man to carry merchandise and wares on the sabbath was one thing for a sick man suddenly and miraculously healed to walk away to his home carrying his mattress was quite another to forbid the one man to carry his burden was scriptural and lawful to forbid the other was cruel and contrary to the spirit of the law of moses the act of the one man was unnecessary the act of the other was an act of necessity and mercy it might perhaps be urged in defense of the jews that they only saw a man carrying off a burden and knew nothing of his previous illness or his cure but when we remember the many instances recorded in the gospels of their extreme and harsh interpretation of the fourth commandment it is doubtful whether this plea will stand verse eleven he that made me whole the same said etc the answer of the man seems simple but it contains a deep principle 
he that hath done so great a thing to me was surely to be obeyed when he told me to take up my bed if he had authority and power to heal he was not likely to lay upon me an unlawful command i only obeyed him who cured me if christ has really healed our souls should not this be our feeling toward him thou hast healed me what thou commandest i will do verse twelve what man is he which said take up thy bed etc Ecolampadius, grotius and many others remark what an example this question is of the malevolent and malicious spirit of the jews instead of asking who healed thee they asked who told thee to carry thy bed they care not for knowing what they might admire as a work of mercy but what they might make the ground of an accusation how many are like them they are always looking out for something to find fault with verse thirteen wist not who it was it is most probable that the cripple really knew not who it was that had healed him and had only seen our lord that day for the first time he was ignorant of his name and only knew him as a kind person who came up and said suddenly wilt thou be made whole and after curing him miraculously suddenly disappeared in the crowd conveyed himself away the greek word so rendered is peculiar and only found in this place parkhurst thinks that it simply means departed or went away schleusner says that the root of the idea is swimming out or escaping by swimming and that the meaning here is withdrew himself secretly from the crowd that was in the place if so it is not improbable that as in luke chapter four verse thirty at nazareth and john chapter ten verse thirty nine in the temple our lord put forth a miraculous power in passing or gliding through the crowd without being observed or stopped verse fourteen afterward temple it is not clear how long a time elapsed before our lord found the man whom he had healed in the temple if the theory be correct to which i adverted in the note in the first verse there must have been an interval the word afterwards is literally after these things chrysostom thinks that the circumstance of the man being found in the temple is an indication of his piety behold thou art made well sin no more etc these words appear to point at something more than meets the eye they are a solemn caution one might fancy that our lord knew that some sin had been the beginning of the man's illness and that he meant to remind him of it it certainly seems very unlikely that our lord would say broadly and vaguely sin no more unless he spoke with a significant reference to some sin which had been the primary cause of this man's long illness see first corinthians chapter eleven verse thirty there are sins which bring their own punishments on men's bodies i am strongly disposed to think that it may have been the case with this man the expression a worse thing would then come out with more force it would be a heavier visitation a worse judgment even than this thirty-eight years illness a sick-bed is a sorrowful place but hell is much worse besser remarks it is a dreadful thing when the correction and mercy of divine love wearies itself with a man in vain you that are sick write over your beds when you rise up from them in renewed health behold thou art made whole sin no more lest a worse thing come unto thee brentius says much the same if sin was the cause of this man's disease and he had been ill from the effects of it thirty-eight years 
it is plain it must have been committed before our lord was born it is an instance in that case of our lord's perfect and divine knowledge of all things past as well as future verse fifteen departed and told the jews there is no proof that the man did this with any evil design born a jew and taught to reverence his rulers and elders he naturally wished to give them the information they desired and had no reason to suppose for anything we can see that it would injure his benefactor End of section twenty section twenty one of expository thoughts on the gospel of st john volume one by j c ryle chapter five verses sixteen to twenty three some works lawful on the sabbath the dignity and majesty of christ john chapter five verses sixteen to twenty three and therefore did the jews persecute jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the sabbath day but Jesus answered them, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Then answered Jesus, and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, The Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth, and he will show him greater works than these, that ye may marvel. For as the Father raiseth up the dead, and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honour the Son, even as they honour the Father. He that honoureth not the Son honoureth not the Father which hath sent him. These verses begin one of the most deep and solemn passages in the four Gospels. They show us the Lord Jesus asserting his own divine nature, his unity with God the Father, and the high dignity of his office. Nowhere does our Lord dwell so fully on these subjects as in the chapter before us and nowhere, we must confess, do we find out so thoroughly the weakness of man's understanding. There is much, we must all feel, that is far beyond our comprehension in our Lord's account of himself. Such knowledge, in short, is too wonderful for us. It is high, we cannot attain unto it. Psalm 119, verse 6. How often men say that they want clear explanations of such doctrines as the Trinity, Yet here we have our Lord handling the subject of his own person, and, behold, we cannot follow him. We seem only to touch his meaning with the tip of our fingers. We learn for one thing, from the verses before us, that there are some works which it is lawful to do on the Sabbath day. The Jews, as on many other occasions, found fault because Jesus healed a man who had been ill for thirty-eight years on the Sabbath. They charged our Lord with a breach of the fourth commandment. Our Lord's reply to the Jews is very remarkable. My father, he says, worketh hitherto, and I also work. It is as though he said, Though my father rested on the seventh day from his work of creation, he has never rested for a moment from his providential government of the world 
and from his merciful work of supplying the daily wants of all his creatures were he to rest from such work the whole frame of nature would stand still and i also work works of mercy on the sabbath day i do not break the fourth commandment when i heal the sick any more than my father breaks it when he causes the sun to rise and the grass to grow on the sabbath we must distinctly understand that neither here nor elsewhere does the lord jesus overthrow the obligation of the fourth commandment neither here nor elsewhere is there a word to justify the vague assertions of some modern teachers that christians ought not to keep a sabbath and that it is a jewish institution which has passed away the uttermost that our lord does is to place the claims of the sabbath on the right foundation he clears the day of rest from the false and superstitious teaching of the jews about the right way of observing it he shows us clearly that works of necessity and works of mercy are no breach of the fourth commandment after all the errors of christians on this subject in these latter days are of a very different kind from those of the jews there is little danger of men keeping the sabbath too strictly the thing to be feared is the disposition to keep it loosely and partially or not keep it at all the tendency of the age is not to exaggerate the fourth commandment but to cut it out from the decalogue and throw it aside altogether against this tendency it becomes us all to be on our guard the experience of eighteen centuries supplies abundant proofs that vital religion never flourishes when the sabbath is not well kept we learn for another thing from these verses the dignity and greatness of our lord jesus christ the jews we are told sought to kill jesus because he said that god was his father making himself equal with god our lord in reply on this special occasion enters very fully into the question of his own divine nature in reading his words we must all feel that we are reading mysterious things and treading on very holy ground but we must feel a deep conviction however little we may understand that the things he says could never have been said by one who is only man the speaker is nothing less than god manifest in the flesh first timothy chapter three verse sixteen he asserts his own unity with god the father no other reasonable meaning can be put on the expression the son can do nothing of himself but what he seeth the father do for what things soever he doeth these also doeth the son likewise the father loveth the son and showeth him all things that himself doeth such language however deep and high appears to mean that in operation and knowledge and heart and will the father and the son are one two persons but one god truths such as these are of course beyond man's power to explain particularly enough for us to believe and rest upon them he asserts in the next place his own divine power to give life he tells us the son quickeneth whom he will life is the highest and greatest gift that can be bestowed it is precisely that thing that man with all his cleverness can neither give to the work of his hands nor restore when taken away but life we are told is in the hands of the lord jesus to bestow and give at his discretion dead bodies and dead souls are both alike under his dominion he has the keys of death and hell in him is life he is the life john chapter one verse four revelation chapter one verse eighteen he asserts in the last place his own authority to judge the world the father we are told has committed all judgment unto the son 
all power and authority over the world is committed to christ's hands he is the king and the judge of mankind before him every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is lord he that was once despised and rejected of man condemned and crucified as a malefactor shall one day hold a great assize and judge all the world god shall judge the secrets of man by jesus christ romans chapter 2 verse 16 and now let us think whether it is possible to make too much of christ in our religion if we have ever thought so let us cast aside the thought for ever both in his own nature as god and in his office as commissioned mediator he is worthy of all honor he that is one with the father the giver of life the king of kings the coming judge can never be too much exalted he that honoureth not the son honoureth not the father that sent him if we desire salvation let us lean our whole weight on this mighty saviour so leaning we never need be afraid christ is the rock of ages and he that builds on him shall never be confounded neither in sickness nor in death nor in the judgment day the hand that was nailed to the cross is almighty the saviour of sinners is mighty to save isaiah chapter sixty three verse one notes john chapter five verses sixteen to twenty three verse sixteen therefore jews persecute etc the verbs in this verse are all in the imperfect tense it may be doubted whether the meaning is not strictly speaking something of this kind the jews from this time began to persecute jesus and were always seeking to slay him because he made a habit of doing these things on the sabbath day it is some confirmation of this view that our lord at a much later period refers to this very miracle at bethesda as a thing which had specially angered the jews of jerusalem and for which they hated him and sought to kill him it was long after the time of this miracle when he said are ye angry with me because i have made a man every whit whole on the sabbath day john chapter seven verse twenty three verse seventeen but jesus answered this seems to have been the first reply which our lord made when charged with breaking the fourth commandment it was a short simple justification of the lawfulness of doing works of mercy on the sabbath there seems to have been an interval between this reply and the log argumentative defence which begins the nineteenth verse my father worketh hitherto and i also work the words rendered hitherto are literally until now that is from the beginning of creation up to the present time i can only see one meaning in this pithy sentence my father in heaven is continually working works of mercy and kindness in his providential government of the world in supplying the wants of all his creatures in maintaining the whole fabric of the earth in perfection in giving rain from heaven and fruitful seasons in preserving and sustaining life all this he does on sabbaths as well as weekdays were he to cease from such works the whole world would be full of confusion when he rested from his works of creation he did not rest from his works of providence i also who am his beloved son claim the right to work works of mercy on the sabbath in working such works i do not break the sabbath any more than my father does my father appointed the fourth commandment to be honored and yet never ceased to cause the sun to rise and the grass to grow on the sabbath i also who claim to be one with the father honor the sabbath but i do not abstain from works of mercy upon it two things should be observed in this sentence 
one is the plain practical lesson that the sabbath was not meant to be a day of total idleness and of entire cessation from all kinds and sorts of work the sabbath was made for man and for his benefit comfort and advantage works of mercy and of real necessity to a man's life and animal existence on the sabbath day were never intended to be forbidden the other thing to be observed is our lord's assertion of his own divinity and equality with god the father when he said my father worketh and i also work he evidently meant much more than bringing forward his father's example though that of course is contained in his argument and justifies all christians in doing works of mercy on sundays what he meant was i am the beloved son of god i and my father are one in essence dignity honor and authority whatever he does i also do and have a right to do he works and i also work he gave you the sabbath and it is his day i too as one with him am lord of the sabbath that the jews saw this to be the meaning of his words seems clear from the next verse chrysostom remarks on this verse if any one say how doth the father work who ceased on the seventh day from all his works let him learn the manner in which he worketh what is it he careth for he holdeth together all that hath been made when thou beheldest the sun rising and the moon running in her path the lakes the fountains the rivers the rains the course of nature in seeds and in our own bodies and those of irrational beings and all the rest by means of which this universe is made up then learn the ceaseless working of the father matthew chapter five verse forty five chapter six verse thirty shotgun quotes a remarkable saying of philo judaeus god never ceases to work just as it is the property of fire to burn and of snow to be cold so it is the property of god to work ferris remarks on the great variety of arguments used by our lord on various occasions in reply to the superstitious view of the jews about the sabbath one time he adduces the example of david eating the showbread another time the example of the priests working in the temple on the sabbath another time the readiness of the jews to help an ox out of a pit on the sabbath all these arguments were used in defense of works of necessity and mercy here he takes higher ground still the example of his father verse eighteen therefore the jews sought the more to kill him this short defense which our lord made seems to have rankled the minds of the jews and to have made them even more bitter against him what length of time is covered by this verse is not very plain i am inclined to think that it implies some little pause between the seventeenth and nineteenth verses here again as in the sixteenth verse we have the imperfect tense all the way through it must surely point at something of habit both in the designs of the jews against our lord and in our lord's conduct and in his language about his father said god his father equal with god it is clear that our lord's words about his sonship struck the jews in a far more forcible way than they seem to strike us in a certain sense all believers are sons of god romans chapter eight verse fourteen but it is evident that they are not so in the sense our lord meant when he talked of god as his father and himself as god's son the greek undoubtedly might be translated more clearly so that god was his own particular father compare romans chapter eight verse thirty two the jews at any rate accepted the words as meaning our lord to assert his own peculiar sonship and his consequent entire equality with god the father their charge and ground of anger against him amounted to this 
thou callest god thine own particular father and claimest authority to do whatever he does by so doing thou makest thyself equal with god and our lord seems to have accepted this charge as a correct statement of the case and to have proceeded to argue that he had a right to say what he had said and that he really was equal with god as st paul says he thought it not robbery to be equal with god philippians chapter 2 verse 6 augustine remarks behold the jews understood what the arians would not understand whitby remarks that the jews never accused our lord of blasphemy for saying that he was the messiah but for saying that he was the son of god because they did not believe that messiah when he appeared was to be a divine person ferris remarks that the jews probably took notice of our lord calling god my father and not our father cartwright also thinks that there is much weight in the expression my and that the jews gathered from it that christ claimed to be the only begotten son of god and not merely a son by adoption and grace verse nineteen then answered jesus and said unto them this verse begins a long discourse in which our lord formally defends himself from the charge of the jews of laying claim to what he had no right to claim one he asserts his own divine authority commission dignity and equality with god his father two he brings forward the evidence of his divine commission which the jews ought to consider and receive three finally he tells the jews plainly the reason for their unbelief and charges home on their consciences their love of man's praise more than god's and their inconsistency in pretending to honor moses while they did not honor christ it is a discourse almost unrivalled in depth and majesty there are few chapters in the bible perhaps where we feel our own shallowness of understanding so thoroughly and discover so completely the insufficiency of all human language to express the deep things of god men are often saying they want explanations of the mysteries of the christian faith the trinity the incarnation the person of christ and the like let them just observe when we do find a passage full of explanatory statements on a deep subject how much there is that we have no line to fathom and no mind to take in i want more light says the proud man god gives him his desire in this chapter and lifts up the veil a little but behold we are dazzled by the very light we wanted and we find we have not the eyes to take it in it has always been thought by many commentators that this solemn discourse of our lord's was delivered before the sanhedrin or general ecclesiastical assembly of the jews they regard it as a formal defense of his divinity and messiahship and a statement of evidence why he should be received before a regularly constituted ecclesiastical court it may be so probabilities seem in favor of the idea but it must be remembered that we have nothing but internal evidence in favor of the theory there is not a word said to show that our lord was formally brought before the sanhedrin and made a formal defense some writers lay much stress upon the opening words of the nineteenth verse then answered jesus and said and consider that these words imply a formal charge in court and a formal reply from our lord it may be true but we must remember that it is only a conjecture one thing is certain nowhere else in the gospels do we find our lord making such a formal systematic orderly regular statement of his own unity with the father his divine commission and authority and the proofs of his messiahship as we find in this discourse to me it seems one of the deepest things in the bible verily verily i say unto you 
here as elsewhere the remark applies that this form of expression always precedes some statement of more than ordinary depth and importance the son can do nothing of himself etc this opening verse declares the complete unity there is between god the father and god the son the son from his very nature and relation to the father can do nothing independently or separately from the father it is not that he lacks or wants the power to do but that he will not do compare genesis chapter 19 verse 22 when the angel said i cannot do anything till thou become thither it means of course i will not do of himself does not mean without help or unassisted but from himself from his own independent will he can only do such things as from his unity with the father and consequent ineffable knowledge he seeth the father doing for the father and the son are so united one god through two persons that whatsoever the father does the son does also the acts of the son therefore are not his own independent acts but the acts of the father also the greek word which we render likewise must not be supposed to mean nothing more than also as well it is literally in like manner bishop hall paraphrases this saying of our lord thus i and the father are one indivisible essence and our acts are no less inseparable the son can do nothing without the will and act of the father and even as he is man can do nothing but what he seeth agreeable to the will and purpose of his heavenly father barnes remarks the words what things soever are without limit all that the father does the son likewise does this is as high an assertion as possible of his being equal with god if one does all that another does or can do then there is proof of equality if the son does all that the father does then like him he must be almighty omniscient ever-present and infinite in every perfection or in other words he must be god augustine remarks our lord does not say whatsoever the father doeth the son does other things like them but the very same things if the son doeth the same things and in like manner then let the jew be silenced the christian believe the heretic be convinced the son is equal with the father hilary quoted in the cantena aurea remarks christ is the son because he does nothing himself he is god because whatsoever things the father doeth he doeth the same they are one because they are equal in honour he is not the father because he is sent diodati remarks the phrase what he seeth the father do is a figurative term showing the inseparable communion of will wisdom and power between the son and the father in the internal order of the most holy trinity toletus remarks when it is said the son can do nothing of himself this does not mean want of power but the highest power just as it is the mark of omnipotence not to be able to die or to be worn out or to be annihilated because there is nothing that can injure omnipotence so likewise to be unable to do anything of himself is no mark of impotence but of the highest power it means nothing less than having one and the same power with the father so that nothing can be done by the one which is not equally done by the other verse twenty the father loveth the son etc this verse carries on the thought begun in the preceding verse the unity of the father and the son when we read the words the father loveth and the father showeth 
we must not for a moment suppose them to imply any superiority in the father or any inferiority in the son as to their divine nature and essence the love is not the love of an earthly parent to a beloved child the showing is not the showing of a teacher to an ignorant scholar the love is meant to show us that unspeakable unity of heart and affection if such words may be reverently used which eternally existed and exists between the father and the son the showing means that entire confidence and cooperation which there was between the father and the son as to all the works which the son should do when he came into the world to fill the office of mediator and to save sinners the greater works which remained to be shown were evidently the works specified in the two following verses the works of quickening and of judging that the jews did marvel and were confounded at the works of quickening we know from the acts of the apostles that they will marvel even more at our lord's work of judgment we shall see when christ comes again to judge the heathen to restore jerusalem to gather israel to convince the jews of their unbelief and to renew the face of the earth both in this and the preceding verse we must carefully remember the utter inability of any human language or human ideas to express perfectly such matters as our lord is speaking of language is intended specially to express the things of man it fails greatly when used to express things about god in the expressions seeth the father do loveth the son showeth him all things will show him greater works we must carefully bear this in mind we must remember that they are expressions accommodated to our weaker capacities they are intended to explain the relation between two divine beings who are one in essence though two persons one in mind and will though two in manifestation equal in all things as touching the godhead though the son is inferior to the father as touching his manhood there must needs be immense difficulty in finding words to convey any idea of the relation between these two persons hence the language used by our lord must be cautiously handled with a constant recollection that we are not reading of an earthly father and son but of god the father and god the son who though one in essence as god are at the same time two distinct persons augustine wisely remarks there are times when speech is deficient even when the understanding is proficient how much more doth a speech suffer defect when the understanding hath nothing perfect augustine and bernard both remark that it is far greater work to repair ruined human nature than to make it at first and to recreate it than to create it verses twenty and twenty one as the father raiseth up the dead etc our lord here proceeds to tell the jews one of his mighty works which he has come to do in proof of his divine nature authority and commission did they find fault with him for making himself equal with god let them know that he had the same power as god the father to give life and quicken the dead let them know furthermore that all judgment was committed to him surely he who had in his hand the mighty prerogatives of giving life and judging the world had a right to speak of himself as equal with god when we read the father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them we must either understand the words to refer generally to god's power to raise the dead at the last day which the jew would allow as an article of faith and a special attribute of divinity or else we must understand it to apply to the power of spiritually quickening men's souls which god had from the beginning exercised in calling men from death to life or else we must simply take it to mean that to give life 
whether bodily or spiritual, is notoriously the peculiar attribute of God. The last view appears to me the most probable one, and most in harmony with what follows in after verses. When we read, The Son quickeneth whom he wills, we have a distinct assertion of the Son's authority to give life at his will, either bodily or spiritually, with the same irresistible power as the Father. The highest of all gifts he has but to will and to bestow. The Greek word translated quickeneth is very strong. It is, literally, makes alive, and seems to imply the power of making life of all kinds, both bodily and spiritual. Burkitt remarks that it is never said of any prophet or apostle that he did mighty works at his will. When we read, The Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment to the Son, we must understand that in the economy of redemption the Father hath honoured the Son by devolving on him the whole office of judging the world. It cannot of course mean that all judgment is work with which the Father from his nature hath nothing to do, but that it is work which he has completely and entirely committed to the Son's hands. He that died for sinners is he that will judge them. Thus it is written, He will judge the world in righteousness, by that man whom he hath ordained. Acts chapter 17 verse 31. Burgon remarks, There is an original, supreme judicial power, and there is also a judicial power derived, given by commission. Christ as God hath the first together with the Father, Christ as man hath the second from the Father. I think it highly probable that the all-judgment committed to the Son includes not merely the final judgment of the last day, but the whole work of ordering, governing, and deciding the affairs of God's kingdom. To judge is an expression constantly used in the Old Testament in the sense of to rule. The meaning then would be that the Father has given to the Son the office of king and judge. The whole administration of the divine government of the world is put into the hands of the Son, Christ Jesus. Everything connected with the rule of the church and world, as well as the last judgment, is placed in the Son's hands. We should carefully mark the distinction between quickening and judging in the language of these two verses. a. It is not said that the Father quickeneth no man, but hath committed the power of giving life to the Son. Had this been said, it would have contradicted the text, No man can come unto me, except the Father draw him, and the Spirit giveth life. John chapter 6 verse 44, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 6. Quickening is the work of all three persons in the Trinity, of one as much as another. b. It is said that judgment is the special work of the second person of the Trinity. It is not the peculiar office, either of the Father or the Spirit, but of the Son. There seems a fitness in this. He who was condemned by an unjust judgment, and died for sinners, is he whose office it will be to judge the world. c. It is said that the Son quickeneth whom he will. The power of giving life is as much the prerogative of the Son as of the Father, or of the Spirit. Surely this teaches us that to place the election of God the Father, or the work of the Spirit, before men as the first and principal thing that they should look at is not good theology. Christ, after all, is the meeting point between the Trinity and the world. It is his office to quicken as well as to pardon. No doubt he quickeneth by the Spirit whom he sends into man's heart, but it is his prerogative to give life as well as peace. This ought to be remembered. 
there are some in this day who in a mistaken zeal put the work of the father and the spirit before the work of christ verse twenty three that all men should honour the son etc by these words our lord teaches us that the father would have the son to receive equal honour with himself we are to understand distinctly that there is no inferiority in the son to the father he is equal to him in dignity and authority he is to be worshipped with equal worship if any man fancies that to honour the son equally with the father detracts from the father's honour our lord declares that such a man is entirely mistaken on the contrary he that honoureth not the son honoureth not the father that sent him it was the mind and intention of the father that the son as the mediator between god and man should receive honour from all men the glory of his beloved son is part of the father's eternal counsels whenever therefore any one through ignorance or pride or unbelief neglects christ but professes at the same time to honour god he is committing a mighty error and so far from pleasing god is greatly displeasing him the more a man honours christ and makes much of him the more the father is pleased evangelical christians should mark the doctrine of this verse and remember it they are sometimes taunted with holding new views in religion because they bring forward christ so much more prominently than their fathers or grandfathers did let them see here that the more they exalt the son of god and his office the more honour they are doing to the father who sent him to the deist and socinian the words of this verse are a strong condemnation not honouring christ they are angering god the father the fatherhood of god out of christ is a mere idol of man's invention and incapable of comforting or saving alfred remarks whosoever does not honour the son with equal honour to that which he pays to the father however he may imagine that he honours or approaches god does not honour him at all because he can only be known by us as the father who sent his son barnes remarks if our saviour here did not intend to teach that he ought to be worshipped and esteemed equal with god it would be difficult to teach it by any language rollock remarks the jews and turks in the present day profess to worship god earnestly not only without the son but even with contempt of the son jesus christ but the whole of such worship is idolatrous and that which they worship is an idol there is no knowledge of the true god except in the face of the son wordsworth remarks they who profess zeal for the one god do not honour him aright unless they honour the son as they honour the father this is a warning to those who claim the title of unitarians and deny the divinity of christ no one can be said to believe in the divine unity who rejects the doctrine of the trinity the entire unity of the three persons in the trinity is a subject that needs far more attention than many give to it it may be feared that many well-meaning christians are tritheists or worshippers of three distinct gods without knowing it they talk as if god the father's mind toward sinners was one thing and god the son's another as if the father hated man and the son loved him and protected him such persons would do well to study this part of scripture and mark the unity of the father and the son after all that deep truth the eternal generation of god the son whatever proud man may say of it is the foundation truth which we must never forget in trying to understand a passage like that before us in the trinity no one is afore or after other the father is eternal the son eternal the holy ghost eternal the father is god the son is god the holy ghost is god 
and yet there are not three eternals but one eternal not three gods but one god as Burgon remarks there never was a time when any one of the three persons was not and it might be added there never was a time when the three persons were not equal and yet the son was begotten of the father from all eternity and the holy spirit proceeded from all eternity from the father and the son End of section 21. Section 22 of Expository Thoughts on the Gospel of St. John, Volume 1, by J. C. Ryle. Chapter 5, verses 24 to 29. Hearing Christ the Way of Salvation. The Privileges of True Believers. Christ's power to give life, the final resurrection of all the dead. John chapter 5, verses 24 to 29. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word, and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice, and shall come forth, they that have done good, unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil, unto the resurrection of damnation. The passage before us is singularly rich in weighty truths. To the minds of the Jews, who were familiar with the writings of Moses and Daniel, it would come home with peculiar power. In the words of our Lord, they would not fail to see fresh assertions of his claim to be received as the promised Messiah. We see in these verses that the salvation of our souls depends on hearing Christ. It is the man, we are told, who hears Christ's word, and believes that God the Father sent him to save sinners, who has everlasting life. Such hearing, of course, is something more than mere listening. It is hearing as a humble scholar hearing as an obedient disciple, hearing with faith and love, hearing with a heart ready to do Christ's will, this is the hearing that saves. It is the very hearing of which God spoke in the famous prediction of a prophet like unto Moses, Unto him shall ye hearken, whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. Deuteronomy chapter 18 verses 15 to 19. To hear Christ in this way, we must never forget, is just as needful now as it was eighteen hundred years ago. It is not enough to hear sermons and run after preachers, though some people seem to think that this makes up the whole of religion. We must go much further than this. We must hear Christ. To submit our hearts to Christ's teaching, to sit humbly at his feet by faith, to learn of him, to enter his school as penitents and become his believing scholars, to hear his voice and follow him, this is the way to heaven. Till we know something experimentally of these things, there is no life in us. 
we see secondly in these verses how rich and full are the privileges of the true hearer and believer such a man enjoys a present salvation even now at this present time he hath everlasting life such a man is completely justified and forgiven there remains no more condemnation for him his sins are put away he shall not come into condemnation such a man is in an entirely new position before god he is like one who has moved from one side of a gulf to another he is passed from death unto life the privileges of a true christian are greatly underrated by many chiefly from deplorable ignorance of scripture they have little idea of the spiritual treasures of every believer in jesus these treasures are brought together here in beautiful order if we will only look at them one of a true christian's treasures is the presentness of his salvation it is not a far distant thing which he is to have at last if he does his duty and is good it is his own in title the moment he believes he is already pardoned forgiven and saved though not in heaven another of a true christian's treasures is the completeness of his justification his sins are entirely removed taken away and blotted out of god's book by christ's blood he may look forward to judgment without fear and say who is he that condemneth romans chapter eight verse thirty four he shall stand without fault before the throne of god the last but not the least of a true christian's treasures is the entire change in his relationship and position toward god he is no longer as one dead before him dead legally like a man sentenced to die and dead in heart he is alive unto god romans chapter six verse eleven he is a new creature old things are passed away and all things are become new second corinthians chapter five verse seventeen well would it be for christians if these things were better known it is want of knowledge in many cases that is the secret of want of peace we see thirdly in these verses a striking declaration of christ's power to give life to dead souls our lord tells us that the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the son of god and they that hear shall live it seems most unlikely that these words were meant to be confined to the rising of men's bodies and were fulfilled by such miracles as that of raising lazarus from the grave it appears far more probable that what our lord had in view was the quickening of souls the resurrection of conversion ephesians chapter two verse one colossians chapter two verse thirteen the words were fulfilled in not a few cases during our lord's own ministry they were fulfilled far more completely after the day of pentecost through the ministry of the apostles the myriads of converts at jerusalem at antioch at ephesus at corinth and everywhere were all examples of their fulfillment in all these cases the voice of the son of god awakened dead hearts to spiritual life and made them feel their need of salvation repent and believe they are fulfilled at this very day in every instance of true conversion whenever any men or women among ourselves awaken to a sense of their souls value and become alive to god the words are made good before our eyes it is christ who has spoken to their hearts by the holy spirit it is the dead hearing christ's voice and living we see lastly in these verses a most solemn prophecy of the final resurrection of all the dead 
our lord tells us that the hour is coming when all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth they that have done good to the resurrection of life and they that have done evil to the resurrection of damnation the passage is one of those that ought to sink down very deeply into our hearts and never be forgotten all is not over when men die whether they like it or not they will have to come forth from their graves at the last day and to stand at christ's bar no one can escape his summons when his voice calls them before him all must obey when men rise again they will not all rise in the same condition there will be two classes two parties two bodies not all will go to heaven not all will be saved some will rise again to inherit eternal life but some will rise again only to be condemned these are terrible things but the words of christ are plain and unmistakable thus it is written and thus it must be let us make sure that we hear christ's quickening voice now and are numbered among his true disciples let us know the privileges of true believers while we have life and health then when his voice shakes heaven and earth and is calling the dead from their graves we shall feel confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming first john chapter two verse twenty eight notes john chapter five verses twenty four to twenty nine verse twenty four verily verily i say here as in other places these words are the preface to a saying of more than ordinary solemnity and importance he that heareth my word the hearing here is much more than mere listening or hearing with the ears it means hearing with the heart hearing with faith hearing accompanied by obedient discipleship he that so hears the doctrine teaching or word of christ hath life it is such hearing as that of the true sheep my sheep hear my voice john chapter 10 verse 27 or as that spoken of by saint paul ye have not so learned christ if so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him ephesians chapter 4 verse 21 believeth on him that sent me this must not be supposed to mean that a vague faith in god such as the deist professes to have is the way to everlasting life the belief spoken of is a believing on god in christ a believing on god as the god who sent christ to save sinners a believing on god as the god and father of our lord jesus christ who has planned and provided redemption by the blood of his son he who so believes on god the father is the same man that believes in god the son in this sense the father is just as much the object of saving faith as the son thus we read it shall be imputed if we believe on him who raised up jesus our lord from the dead romans chapter four verse twenty four and again who by him do believe in god that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in god first peter chapter one verse twenty one he that rightly believes on christ as his saviour with the same faith believes in god as his reconciled father the gospel that invites the sinner to believe in jesus as his redeemer and advocate invites him at the same time to believe in the father who is well pleased with all who trust in his son henry remarks christ's design is to bring us to god first peter chapter three verse eighteen as god is the first original of all grace so is he the ultimate object of all faith 
christ is our way and god is our rest we must believe on god as having sent jesus christ and recommended himself to our faith and love by manifesting his glory in the face of jesus christ lightfoot remarks he doth most properly centre the ultimate fixing and resting of belief in god the father for as from him as from a fountain do flow all those things that are the object of faith namely free grace the gift of christ the way of redemption the gracious promises so unto him as to that fountain doth faith betake itself in its final resting and repose namely to god in christ chemnitius remarks that the expression believe on him who sent me shows that true faith embraces the word of the gospel not as something thought out by christ alone but as something decreed in the secret council of the holy trinity hath everlasting life this means that he possesses a complete title to an everlasting life of glory hereafter and is reckoned pardoned forgiven justified and an heir of heaven even now upon earth his soul is delivered from the second death the presentness of the expression should be carefully noticed everlasting life is the present possession of every true believer from the moment he believes it is not a thing he shall have at last he has it at once even in this world all that believe are justified being justified by faith we have place with god acts chapter 13 verse 39 romans chapter 5 verse 1 shall not come into condemnation the greek word for come is in the present tense and it would be more literally rendered does not come the meaning is there is no condemnation for him his guilt is removed even now he has nothing to fear in looking forward to the judgment of the last day there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in christ jesus he that believeth on him is not condemned romans chapter 8 verse 1 john chapter 3 verse 18 i cannot see in these words any warrant for the notion held by some that the saints of god shall not be judged at the last day in any way at all the notion itself is so utterly contradictory to some plain texts of scripture second corinthians chapter five verse ten romans chapter fourteen verse ten matthew chapter twenty five verse thirty one that i cannot understand any one holding it but even in the text before us it seems to me a violent straining of the words to apply them to the judgment day the thing our lord is speaking of is the present privilege of a believer the tense he uses as chimnidius bids us specially observe is the present and not the future and even supposing that the words do apply to the judgment day the utmost that can be fairly made of them is that a believer has no condemnation to fear at the last day judged according to his works he shall be condemned he may certainly feel assured that he shall not be from the day he believes all condemnation is taken away Echolampadius remarks how irreconcilable this verse is with the Romish doctrine of purgatory. But is passed from death to life. This means that a believer has passed from a state of spiritual death to a state of spiritual life. Before he believed he was dead legally, dead as a guilty criminal condemned to die. In the day that he believed he received a full and free pardon. His sentence was reversed and put away instead of being legally dead he became legally alive but this is not all 
his heart which was dead in sins is now renewed and alive unto god there is a change in his character as well as in his position toward god like the prodigal son he was dead and is alive luke chapter 15 verse 24 we should mark carefully the strong language of scripture in describing the immense difference between the position of a man who believes and the man who does not believe it is nothing else than the difference between life and death between being dead and being alive whatever some may think fit to say about the privileges of baptism we must never shrink from maintaining that so long as men do not hear christ's voice and believe so long they are dead whether baptized or not and have no life in them faith not baptism is the turning point he that has not yet believed is dead and must be born again when he believes and not till then he will pass from death to life ferris remarks although it seems very easy to believe and many think they do believe when they have only heard the name of believing supposing that to believe is the same as to understand to remember to know to think yet this believing is in truth a hard and difficult thing it is easy to fast to say prayers to go on pilgrimage to give alms and the like but to believe is a thing impossible to our strength let superstitious people learn that god requires of us a far higher and more difficult kind of worship than they imagine let pious people learn to seek faith more than anything saying lord increase our faith verse twenty five verily verily i say unto you this emphatic preface here begins a prophecy of the wonderful things that should yet be done by the son of god did the jews of jerusalem desire to know what proofs of divine power and authority the son of god would give let them hear what he would do the hour is coming and now is this meant that a time was coming and in fact had already begun the dead shall hear his voice and live it is thought by some that these words apply to the literal raising again of dead persons such as lazarus at bethany i cannot think it i believe that the dead here spoken of are the spiritually dead i believe that the hearing of the voice of the son of god means the hearing of faith i believe that the living spoken of means the rising out of the death of sin to spiritual newness of life and i believe that the whole verse is a prediction of the many conversions of dead sinners that were to take place soon and had begun in some measure to take place already the prediction was fulfilled when dead souls were converted during our lord's own ministry and was much more fulfilled after the day of pentecost when he was preached by his apostles to the gentiles and believed on in the world first timothy chapter three verse sixteen to confine the words to the few cases of miraculous raising of dead bodies which took place in the time of our lord and his apostles appears to supply a very inadequate interpretation and to be rendered unnecessary by the succeeding verse let it be noted that it is only those who hear or have heard with faith the voice of christ that live spiritual life turns on believing ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 Ferris and Cosius think that the calling and conversion of the Gentiles was the principal thought in our Lord's mind when he spoke these words. Verse 26. For as the Father, etc. The first part of this verse needs no explanation. It is an admitted principle that God is the author and source of all life. 
he hath life in himself when it says further that he hath given to the son to have life in himself we must not suppose it means that he has bestowed it on his son in the same way that he gives gifts to mere men such as prophets and apostles it rather means that in his everlasting counsels concerning man's redemption he has appointed that the second person of the trinity his beloved son should be the dispenser and giver of life to all mankind god has given to us eternal life and this life is in his son first john chapter five verse eleven both here and in the following verse we must remember that giving does not imply any inferiority in the son to the father so far as concerns his divine essence the things given to the son were things solemnly appointed deputed and laid upon him when he assumed the office of mediator in virtue of his office Burgon remarks both the father and the son have the same life both have it in themselves both in the same degree as the one so the other but only with this difference the father from all eternity giveth it the son from all eternity receiveth it verse twenty seven and hath given him authority etc this means that in virtue of his mediatorial office the second person of the trinity is specially appointed to be the judge of all mankind in the counsels of god concerning man judgment is assigned to the son and not to the father or to the holy spirit it is undoubtedly true that god is judge of all hebrews chapter twelve verse twenty three but it is also true that it is god the son who will execute judgment and sit on the throne at the last day because he is the son of man these words seem to imply that there is a connection between our lord's incarnation and his filling of the office of the judge it is because he humbled himself to take our nature on him and be born of the virgin mary that he will at length be exalted to execute judgment at the last day it appears to be the same thought that st paul expresses when he tells the philippians that because of christ's humiliation god also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name etc philippians chapter two verse nine Burgon remarks because of his alliance with man's nature because of his sense of man's infirmities because of all he did and suffered for man's sake as the son of man the son is that person of the trinity who is most fit as well as most worthy to be man's judge the expression the son of man would be rendered more literally a son of man or son of man campbell remarks the absence of the article the before the words son of man occurs nowhere in the gospels except in this passage both in this and the preceding verse we should observe an example of the great truth that order is heaven's first law even the second person of the trinity one with the father very and eternal god does not take on himself the office of giving life and executing judgment but receives it through the solemn appointment of god the father just as it is written christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest but he that said unto him thou art my son hebrews chapter five verse five so we find it written here that in taking on him the office of mediator it was given to him to have life in himself and authority given to him to judge those who take on themselves offices without either divine or human commission are very unlike our lord toletus quotes a remarkable passage from athanasius in which he points out that such expressions as 
given to the son by the father received by the son from the father are purposefully used in order to prevent the sabellian heresy of supposing that the father and the son are one and the same person such expressions are an unanswerable proof that the father and the son are two distinct persons though one god we must never forget the words of the anthanasian creed neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance verses twenty eight and twenty nine marvel not at this these words imply that the hearers of our lord were astonished at the things he had spoken concerning his divine commission to give life and to judge he proceeds to tell them that they have not yet heard all if they wondered at what they had already heard what would they think when he told them one thing more the hour is coming this means the last day to use the present tense of a time so distant as this is characteristic of one who is very god to whom time past time present and time to come are all alike and a thousand years are as one day all that are in the graves shall hear his voice come forth damnation etc these words are singularly like those in daniel chapter twelve verse two they contain one of the most distinct statements in scripture of that great truth the resurrection of the dead it shall be universal and not confined to a few only all in the graves shall come forth whether old or young rich or poor it shall take place at christ's command and bidding his voice shall be the call that shall summon the dead from their graves there shall be a distinction of those who rise again in two classes some shall rise to glory and happiness to what is called a resurrection of life some shall rise to be lost and ruined for ever to what is called a resurrection of damnation the doings of men shall be the test by which their final state shall be decided life shall be the portion of those that have done good damnation of those that have done evil in the resurrection day a this passage condemns those who fancy that this world is all and that this life ends everything and that the grave is the conclusion they are awfully mistaken there is a resurrection and a life to come b this passage condemns those who try to persuade us in the present day that there is no future punishment no hell no condemnation for the wicked in the world to come that the love of god is lower than hell that god is too merciful and compassionate to punish any one there is a resurrection we are told of damnation c this passage condemns those who try to make out that resurrection is the peculiar privilege of believers and saints and that the wicked will be punished by complete annihilation both here and in acts chapter twenty four verse fifteen we are distinctly told that both bad and good shall rise again in st paul's famous chapter about the resurrection first corinthians chapter fifteen the resurrection of believers only is treated of d this passage condemns those who try to make out that men's lives and conduct are of little importance so long as they profess to have faith and to believe in christ christ himself tells us expressly that the doings of men whether good or evil will be the evidence that shall decide whether they rise again to glory or condemnation musculus remarks that the goodness which god requires of us is not such as only begins in the next world after the resurrection we must have it now and it must precede the time of judgment it is not said 
some shall rise again that they may be made good and partakers of life but they that have done good shall come forth to a resurrection of life we should take care to be such in this life as we desire to be found in the day of judgment he also remarks that our lord does not say those who have known or talked what is good but those who have actually done good shall come forth to a resurrection of life those only will be found to have done good who are god's elect born again and true believers nothing but true faith will bear the fruit of good works calvin remarks that our lord is not here speaking of the cause of salvation but of the marks of the saved and that one great mark which distinguishes the elect from the reprobate is good doing there are two different greek words used to express the english words they that have done and it is difficult to say why precisely the same difference exists in john chapter three verses twenty and twenty one the attempts made to explain the distinction between the two words do not appear to me very successful for instance wordsworth remarks good made and done has permanence for ever evil is practised but produces no fruit for eternity yet i doubt whether this remark will apply to romans chapter one verse thirty two and chapter two verse three where both the two greek words for doing are used together and applied to the same class of persons viz the wicked it is thought by some that this passage supports the doctrine of the first resurrection as the peculiar privilege of the saints revelation chapter twenty verse five but it must in fairness be remembered that there is nothing said here about distinction of time in the resurrection of the good and the bad as to the manner in which christ's voice will be heard by the dead in the graves we are told nothing it is remarkable that there are two other places besides this in which a voice or sound is mentioned as accompanying the resurrection in corinthians we read the last trumpet first corinthians chapter fifteen verse fifty two in thessalonians we are told of a shout of the voice of the archangel and the trump of god first thessalonians chapter four verse sixteen nothing however but conjecture can be brought forward about the subject no doubt the latent thought is that the dead bodies of men are sleeping and need to be awakened as sleepers are roused by a voice as to the nature of risen bodies we are told nothing enough for us to know that this passage clearly shows it will be a resurrection of bodies as well as souls it is those who are in the graves that shall come forth end of section twenty two section twenty three of expository thoughts on the gospel of st john volume one by j c ryle chapter five verses thirty to thirty nine the honour christ puts on his servants the honour christ puts on miracles the honour christ puts on the scriptures john chapter five verses thirty to thirty nine i can of mine own self do nothing as i hear i judge and my judgment is just because i seek not mine own will but the will of the father which hath sent me if i bear witness of myself my witness is not true there is another that beareth witness of me and i know that the witness which he witnesseth of me is true ye sent unto john and he bear witness unto the truth but i receive not testimony from man but these things i say that ye might be saved. 
He was a burning and a shining light, and ye were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. But I have greater witness than that of John, for the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do, bear witness of me, that the Father hath sent me. And the Father himself, which hath sent me, hath borne witness of me. Ye hath neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape. And ye have not his word abiding in you, for whom he hath sent, him ye believe not. Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. In these verses we see the proof of our Lord Jesus Christ being the promised Messiah, set forth before the Jews in one view. Four different witnesses are brought forward, four kinds of evidence are offered. His Father in heaven, his forerunner John the Baptist, the miraculous works he had done, the scriptures which the Jews professed to honor. Each and all are named by our Lord as testifying that he was the Christ, the Son of God. Hard must those hearts have been, which could hear such testimony and yet remain unmoved. But it only proves the truth of the old saying, that unbelief does not arise so much from want of evidence as from want of will to believe. Let us observe for one thing in this passage the honor Christ puts on his faithful servants. See how he speaks of John the Baptist. He bare witness of the truth. He was a burning and a shining light. John had probably passed away from his earthly labors when these words were spoken. He had been persecuted, imprisoned, and put to death by Herod, none interfering, none trying to prevent his murder. But this murdered disciple was not forgotten by his divine master. If no one else remembered him, Jesus did. He had honored Christ, and Christ honored him. These things ought not to be overlooked. They are written to teach us that Christ cares for all his believing people and never forgets them. Forgotten and despised by the world, perhaps, they are never forgotten by their Saviour. He knows where they dwell and what their trials are. A book of remembrance is written for them. Their tears are all in his bottle. Psalm 66, verse 8. Their names are graven on the palms of his hands. He notices all they do for him in this evil world though they think it not worth notice, and he will confess it one day publicly before his Father and the holy angels. He that bore witness to John the Baptist never changes. Let believers remember this. In their worst estate they may boldly say with David, I am poor and needy, yet the Lord thinketh upon me. Psalm 40, verse 17. Let us observe for another thing the honor Christ puts on miracles as evidence of his being the Messiah. He says, The works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. The miracles of the Lord receive far less attention in the present day as proofs of his divine mission than they ought to do. Too many regard them with a silent incredulity as things which, not having seen, they cannot be expected to care for. Not a few openly avow that they do not believe in the possibility of such things as miracles, and would fain strike them out of the Bible as weak stories, which, like burdensome lumber, should be cast overboard to lighten the ship. But, 
After all, there is no getting over the fact that in the days when our Lord was upon earth, His miracles produced an immense effect on the minds of men. They aroused attention to Him that worked them. They excited inquiry, if they did not convert. They were so many, so public, and so incapable of being explained away, that our Lord's enemies could only say that they were done by satanic agency. That they were done, they could not deny. This man, they said, doeth many miracles. John chapter 11, verse 47. The facts which wise men pretend to deny now, no one pretended to deny eighteen hundred years ago. Let the enemies of the Bible take our Lord's last and greatest miracle, his own resurrection from the dead, and disprove it if they can. When they have done that, it will be time to consider what they say about miracles in general. They have never answered the evidence of it yet, and they never will. Let the friends of the Bible not be moved by objections against miracles, until that one miracle has been fully disposed of. If that is proved unassailable, they need not care much for quibbling arguments against other miracles. If Christ did really rise from the dead by his own power, there is none of his mighty works which man need hesitate to believe. Let us observe, lastly in these verses, the honor that Christ puts upon the Scriptures. He refers to them in concluding his list of evidences as the great witnesses to him. Search the Scriptures, he says, they are they which testify of me. These Scriptures of which our Lord speaks are of course the Old Testament, and his words show the important truth which too many are apt to overlook, that every part of our Bibles is meant to teach us about Christ. Christ is not merely in the Gospels and Epistles. Christ is to be found directly and indirectly in the Law, the Psalms, and the Prophets, in the promises to Adam, Abraham, Moses, and David, in the types and emblems of the ceremonial law, in the predictions of Isaiah and the other prophets, Jesus, the Messiah, is everywhere to be found in the Old Testament. How is it that men see these things so little? The answer is plain. They do not search the Scriptures. They do not dig into the wondrous mine of wisdom and knowledge, and seek to become acquainted with its contents. Simple, regular reading of our Bibles is the grand secret of establishment in the faith. Ignorance of the Scriptures is the root of all error. And now, what will men believe, if they do not believe the divine mission of Christ? Great, indeed, is the obstinacy of infidelity. A cloud of witnesses testify that Jesus was the Son of God. To talk of wanting evidence is childish folly. The plain truth is, that the chief seat of unbelief is the heart. Many do not wish to believe, and therefore remain unbelievers. Notes John chapter 5, verses 30 to 39. Verse 30. I can of mine own self, etc. This verse is perhaps one of the most difficult in Scripture. It is so because the subject of it is that great mystery, the unity of God the Father and God the Son. Man has no language to express adequately the idea that has to be conveyed. The general thought of this verse seems to be as follows. In consequence of the close relation between me and the Father, I cannot do anything independently and separately from Him. I judge, and decide, and speak on all points, in entire harmony with the Father, as though I heard Him continually at my side, 
and so judging and speaking my judgment on all points is always right. It is right now, and will be seen right at the great account of the last day. For in all that I do I seek not to do my own will only, but the will of him that sent me, since there is an entire harmony between my will and his. Let it be carefully noted that at this part of his address our Lord ceases to speak in the third person of himself as the Son of Man, and begins to use the first person, I can, I hear, I judge, etc. Of mine own self does not mean unhelped and unassisted, but from myself, from my own independent volition and action. Chrysostom remarks, just as when we say, it is impossible for God to do wrong, we do not impute to him any weakness, but confess in him an unutterable power, so also when Christ saith, I can of my own self do nothing, the meaning is that it is impossible, my nature admits not, that I should do anything contrary to the Father. As I hear is an expression adapted to man's comprehension to convey the idea of the unity between the Father and the Son. It is like verse 19, where it is said, The Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do. It is also like the words used of the Holy Ghost, he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. John chapter 16, verse 13. Chrysostom remarks, Just as when Christ said, We speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and John the Baptist said, That which he hath seen and heard he testifieth. John chapter 3, verses 11 and 32. Both expressions are used concerning exact knowledge, and not concerning mere seeing and hearing. So in this place, when Christ speaks of hearing, he declares nothing else than that it is impossible for him to desire anything save what the Father desireth. I judge applies not only to all Christ's judgments and decisions as mediator when he was upon earth, but to his final judgment at the last day. My judgment is just, would probably remind the Jews of the prophecies about Messiah. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 3 and Daniel chapter 7 verse 13. I seek not my own will must be interpreted with special reference to our Lord's divine nature as Son of God. Having as God one will with the Father, it was not possible for him to seek his own will independently of the Father. Hence the judgment was not his only but his Father's also. As Son of Man he had a human will distinct from his divine will as when he said, Let this cup pass from me, nevertheless not as I will, but as thou wilt. Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. But the will here seems to be his divine will. Chrysostom remarks, What Christ implieth is of this kind, not that the will of the Father is one and his own another, but that as one will in one mind, so is mine own will and my Father's. Once more we must remember the extreme difficulty of handling such a subject as the one before us. The distinction between the persons in the Trinity and the unity of their essence at the same time must always be a deep thing to man, hard to conceive and harder still to speak or write about. Verse 31. If I bear witness of myself, etc. This verse must be interpreted with caution and reasonable qualification. 
it would be folly and blasphemy to say that our lord's testimony about himself must be false what the verse does appear to mean is this if i have no other testimony to bring forward in proof of my messiahship but my own word my testimony would be justly open to suspicion our lord knew that in any disputed question a man's assertions in his own favor are worth little or nothing he tells the jews that he did not want them to believe him merely because he said he was the son of god he would show them that he had other witnesses and these witnesses he next proceeds to bring forward a comparison of this verse with john chapter eight verse fourteen shows at once that the meaning of the words my witness is not true must be qualified and restrained or else one place of scripture would contradict the other verse thirty two there is another that beareth witness there are two distinct and different views of this expression a some as chrysostom theophylact euthymius lightfoot brentius grotius ferris baradius quesnel whitby doddridge gill think that the other witness is john the baptist b some as cyril athanasius calvin beza galter bucer Echolampadius, zwingle rupertus flacius colovius cochicius piscator musculnus aretius totellus nephanius rollock pool lee diodati hammond trap hutchinson henry burkett baxter bloomfield lamp bengal pierce a clark scott barnes steer alfred webster think that the other witness is god the father i feel no doubt in my own mind that this last is the correct view to use the present tense witnesseth is a strong proof of it john the baptist's testimony was a thing past and gone our lord declares that his father had borne distinct testimony to him and supplied abundant evidence if they the jews would only receive it and he adds his testimony is true he will never bear witness to a lie then having laid down this general proposition he goes on to show the threefold testimony which god had provided first john the baptist secondly the miracles which the father had commissioned him to work and thirdly the scriptures the expression i know probably implies the deep consciousness which our lord had even in his humiliation of his father's perfect righteousness and truthfulness it means much more than mere man's i know i know and have known from all eternity that my father's testimony is perfect truth verse thirty three ye sent unto john etc in this sentence the word ye must be taken emphatically it is ye yourselves the meaning of the verse seems to be my first witness is john the baptist now ye yourselves sent unto him at an early period of his ministry and ye know that he told you one greater than himself was coming whose messenger he was and that afterwards he said of me behold the lamb of god you cannot deny that he was a prophet indeed yet he bore faithful witness unto me he told you the truth there can be no doubt that our lord refers to the formal mission of priests and levites from jerusalem to john the baptist described in john chapter one verse nineteen verse thirty four but i received not testimony from man etc 
This sentence seems meant to remind the Jews that they must not suppose our Lord dependent either solely or chiefly on man's testimony. Not that I would have you think I rest my claim to be received as the Messiah on the witness of John the Baptist, or of any other man, but I say these things about John and his witness to me in order to remind you of what you heard him say, and that remembering his testimony to me you may believe and be saved. Here, as elsewhere, we should note how our Lord presses home on the Jews the inconsistency of admitting John the Baptist to be a prophet sent from God, while they refused to believe himself as the Messiah. If they believed John, they ought in consistency to have believed him. See Matthew chapter 21, verses 23 to 27. Verse 35. He was a burning light. This is very high testimony to John. Doubtless he was not the light, as Christ was, but still he was not an ordinary lamp lighted from above, as all true believers are. He was preeminently the lamp, a lamp of peculiar power and brilliancy, a burning and a shining light, like a flaming beacon or a lighthouse seen from afar. I think the expression, he was, shows that at the time when our Lord spoke, John the Baptist was either in prison or dead. At any rate, his public ministry was ended. He used to be a light. He is burning and shining no longer. Chrysostom remarks, He called John a torch or lamp, signifying that he had not light of himself, but by the grace of the Spirit. Ye were willing for a season to rejoice. This refers to the extraordinary popularity and acceptance of John the Baptist when his ministry first began. Then went out unto him Jerusalem and all Judea, and all the country round about Jordan. Matthew chapter 3 verse 5. Many of the Pharisees and Sadducees came to his baptism. Matthew chapter 3 verse 7. It was an ignorant excitement that brought many of John's hearers to him. They thought most probably that the Messiah, of whom he spoke, and whose way he came to prepare, would be a temporal king and conqueror, and would give to Israel its old preeminence on earth. But be the motives what they might, the fact remains that John's ministry attracted immense attention, and awakened the curiosity of the whole Jewish nation. They willingly rejoiced in the light which John lifted up. They seemed to take pleasure in coming to him, hearing him, following him, and submitting to his baptism. The expression, for a season, seems purposefully used to remind the Jews of the very temporary and transitory nature of the impressions which John's ministry produced on them. Steer remarks, Man generally, even a prophet, can only give light by burning, like a lighted candle, until he is burnt out, and his mission on earth ceases. Thus did the Baptist burn, brightly but rapidly. Burkitt remarks, it has been an old practice among professors not to like their pastors long, though they have never been such burning and shining lights. John was not changed, but his hearers were changed. He did burn and shine in the candlestick with equal zeal and luster to the last, but they changed their thoughts of him. Verse 36. But I have greater witness, John. This means... Although John the Baptist was a witness to me, being the Messiah, and the Son of God, he was not the only testimony I bid you to receive. There is testimony even more important than his, namely, that of my miracles. 
The Greek means literally, the greater witness. The witness that I have is greater. Flasius suggests that our Lord here and in the preceding verse reminds the Jews how willing they were at first to receive John's ministry, and almost seemed to think that he was the Messiah. Yet all this time John did no miracle. But when the true Messiah appeared, doing mighty works, the Jews did not show him even as much attention as they had shown to John. The Works, Father Hath Given, etc. This is a distinct appeal to miracles, as an important proof of our Lord's Messiahship and divinity. Four times in this Gospel we find the same appeal. John chapter 3, verse 2, chapter 10, verse 25, chapter 15, verse 24. The evidence of miracles should never be lightly esteemed. We are apt to underrate their value because they were wrought so long ago. But in the days when they were wrought they were great facts which demanded the attention of all who saw them and could not be evaded. Unless the Jews could explain them away, they were bound as honest and reasonable men to believe our Lord's divine mission. That they really were wrought the Jews never appear to have denied. In fact they dared not attempt to deny them. What they did do was to ascribe them to satanic agency. All who attempt to deny the reality of our Lord's miracles in the present day would do well to remember that those who had the best opportunity of judging, namely, the men who saw these miracles and lived within hearing of them, never disputed the fact that they were wrought. If the enemies of our Lord could have proved that his miracles were only tricks, legerdemain, and impostures, it stands to reason they would have been only too glad to show it to the world, and to silence him for ever. Five things should always be noted about our Lord's miracles. 1. Their number. They were not a few only, but very many indeed. 2. Their greatness. They were not little, but mighty interferences with the ordinary course of nature. 3. Their publicity. They were generally not done in a corner, but in open day, and before many witnesses, and often before enemies. 4. Their character. They were almost always works of love, mercy, and compassion, helpful and beneficial to man, and not mere barren exhibitions of power. 5. Their direct appeal to men's senses. They were visible, and would bear any examination. The difference between them and the boasted miracles of the Church of Rome on all these points, is striking and instructive. The manner in which our Lord speaks of his miracles is very remarkable. He calls them, The works that the Father hath given me that I should finish. He carefully avoids the appearance of want of unity between the Father and himself, even in the working of miracles. They are not works which he did of his own independent will, but works which the Father hath given me works which it hath been arranged in the eternal counsels the Son should work, when he became man and dwelt upon earth. Precisely the same expression is used elsewhere about the words our Lord spoke, as here about the works. I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me. John chapter 17 verse 8 Verse 37 And the Father himself, witness of me, there is undeniable difficulty about these words. It is not clear to what witness of the Father our Lord here refers. a. Some, as Chrysostom, Brentius, Bullinger, Gauter, Ferris, Toletus, Baradius, Cartwright, Chimnitius, Rollock, Jensenius, Trapp, Baxter, Hammond, Burkitt, Lamp, Bengal, Henry, Scott, Gill, 
think that our Lord refers to the audible testimony borne to him by the Father at his baptism, and at the transfiguration, when he said, This is my beloved Son, hear him. Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, chapter 17, verse 5. But it surely is a capital objection to this theory, that this voice of the Father was in all probability heard by nobody excepting John the Baptist at the baptism, and Peter, James, and John at the transfiguration. At this rate it would be entirely a private testimony, and of no avail to the general body of the Jewish nation. b. Some, as Theophylact, Euthymius, Rupertus, Calvin, Coxius, Pierce, Tholuck, Bloomfield, Titman, A. Clark, D. Brown, Alford, Burgon, think that our Lord refers to the testimony the Father has borne to him generally throughout the Old Testament scripture, and that the sentence before us should be taken in close connection with the next verse but one, beginning, Search the Scriptures. In fact, that expression would then be the explanation of our Lord's meaning. Of the two views, I decidedly prefer the second one. It certainly seems the least difficult, and open to the fewest objections. There is a third view, supported by Olshausen and Bucer, viz., that the witness here means the inward witness of the Spirit in the hearts of believers. This, however, appears to me wholly out of the question. It is a witness that would be useless to the world at large. Both here and elsewhere we must take care that we do not attach the idea of inferiority to the expression sent by the Father. Rollock remarks, It is quite possible that an equal may send an equal to discharge some office. Cyril remarks, Mission and obedience, being sent and obeying, do not take away equality of power in the sender and the sent one. Ye have neither heard, seen his shape. This appears to be a parenthetical sentence, as well as the verse that follows. It certainly seems to strengthen the view that when our Lord spoke of his Father, bearing witness, he could not have meant the audible witness of his voice at the baptism or transfiguration. In fact, the sentence seems purposely to preclude this notion. It is as though our Lord said, do not suppose that I mean any audible testimony of voice or apparition or vision when I speak of my Father bearing witness to me. I mean testimony of a very different kind, even the testimony of his word. The expression, not seen his shape, teaches the same great truth we find elsewhere, viz., that the Father is invisible and has never been seen by mortal man. He who appeared to Abraham was the second person of the Trinity and not the Father. St. Paul says distinctly of the Father, whom no man hath seen, nor can see, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. The idea of artists and painters, when they represent the Father as an aged man, is a mere irreverent invention of their own brains, without the slightest warrant of Scripture. Rupertus and Ferris suggest that the latter part of this verse was spoken to prevent the Jews thinking that our Lord spoke of Joseph, his supposed father. This, however, seems a rather improbable and fanciful idea. Verse 38. And ye have not his word, etc. This verse seems meant to remind the Jews that with all their pretended reverence for God and affected zeal against blasphemies of him, they were really ignorant of God's mind. Their reverence for him was only a form. Their zeal for him was a blind fanaticism. They knew no more of his mind than of his shape or voice. They were not acquainted with his word. It did not dwell in their hearts and guide their religion. 
they proved their own ignorance by not believing him whom the father had sent had they really been familiar with the writings of the old testament they would have believed our lord evidently implies that real knowledge of god's word will always lead a man to faith in christ where there is no faith we may rightly assume the bible is either not read or read in a wrong spirit ignorance and unbelief will go together locke holds the curious opinion that the word in this verse means the personal word as at john chapter one verse one ye have not me the eternal word dwelling in your hearts but christ nowhere calls himself the word and the idea does not harmonize with the context Echolampadius thinks that in this and the preceding verse there is a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 18 verses 15 to 19 where the Lord promised a prophet to the Jews like unto Moses because they had said let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God neither let me see this great fire any more that I die not he thinks our Lord reminds them of this God had fulfilled his promise and sent them a prophet like unto Moses and now they would not believe him verse thirty nine search the scriptures this famous sentence is interpreted two different ways a some as cyril erasmus echolampadius biza brentius biscotter camero pool toletus lightfoot lamp bengal doddridge bloomfield thullock a clark Scholefield, barnes Burgon, d brown webster think that our lord spoke in the indicative mood simply making an assertion ye do search b some as chrysostom augustine theophylact euthymius luther calvin cartwright galter grotius rollock ferris colovius jansenius cosius Baradius, musculnus nephanius maldonatus cornelius apati lay whitby hammond steer alfred wordsworth think that he spoke in the imperative mood giving a command search as our version gives it i decidedly prefer this latter view it is more forcible and more in keeping with our lord's general style of address above all it seems to me to agree far better with the context our lord had told the jews that his father had borne witness of him though not by audible voice nor by visible apparition how then had he borne witness they would find it in his word go and search your own scriptures our lord seems to say examine them and become really acquainted with their contents you will find that they testify clearly and distinctly of me if you wish to know god the father's testimony to me search the scriptures the word rendered search means search minutely and diligently it appears to me intentionally used to show that the jews should not be content with mere reading the Septuagint version of Proverbs chapter 2 verse 4 has an expression like it. Chrysostom remarks, When Christ referred the Jews to the Scriptures, he sent them not to a mere reading, but to a careful and considerate search. He said not, Read, but search. Since the sayings about him required great attention, for they had been concealed from the beginning for the advantage of men of that time, he bids them now dig down with care, that they might discern what lay in the depths below. These sayings were not on the surface, nor were they cast forth to open view, but lay like some treasure hidden very deep. 
Some, who think the word search should be taken as an indicative, ye search, maintain that our Lord spoke ironically, and meant, ye pretend to make a minute investigation of Scripture, and search into the letter of it, but never get any further. I can see little ground for this view. The word search is never used in a bad sense in Scripture, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11. The chief argument in favor of the indicative side of the question is the notorious rabbinical custom of minutely scrutinizing and reverencing every syllable of Scripture. To this custom of honoring the letter of Scripture, while neglecting its spirit, many advocates of the indicative here think that our Lord referred. Brentius gives a full account of the length to which the Jews went in their reverence for the letter of the Scripture, such as counting the letters of each book, etc., and thinks that this was in our Lord's mind. I cannot, however, agree with this view. In them ye think ye have eternal life. In this sentence the first ye must be taken emphatically, as in the thirty-third verse. Think does not imply that it was a doubtful point, or mere matter of opinion. It is rather, ye yourselves think, and think rightly. It is one of the dogmas of your faith, that ye have in the scriptures the way to eternal life pointed out. Chemnitius remarks, The words, ye think, mean that common persuasion and opinion of all men concerning scripture, which, like an axiom in science, is established, firm, and certain. Let it be noted that many Christians are just in the unsatisfactory state of the Jews here described. Like them, they think, and hold it as dogma of their creed, that they have eternal life in the scriptures. But, like them, they never read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest what Scripture contains. Echolampadius remarks, Scripture alone does not make a man any the better, nor even preaching, by itself, except by the Holy Ghost abiding. It is the peculiar office of the external word to supply testimony, but it is the Spirit of God alone that can make the heart of man assent. They are they which testify of me. This sentence is a strong and weighty declaration of the value of the Old Testament scriptures. It was to them exclusively, of course, that our Lord referred. He says, They testify of me. In direct prophecies, in promises, in typical persons, in typical ceremonies, the Old Testament scripture all through testifies of Christ. We read them to very little purpose if we do not discern this. Ferris remarks that there are three ways in which the Scripture testifies to Christ. 1. Generally. They are, as it were, the voice of the uncreated Word, ever speaking to man in every part of them. 2. In figures. The paschal lamb, the brazen serpent, and all the sacrifices of the law were witnesses of Christ. 3. In direct prophecies. Let us note in this verse the high honor which our Lord puts on Old Testament Scriptures. He distinctly endorses the Jewish canon of inspired writings. Those modern writers who labor to depreciate them and bring them into disrepute show very little of Christ's mind. Much infidelity begins with an ignorant contempt of the Old Testament. Steer remarks, Israel, possessing still the Old Testament, will enter into the kingdom when the despisers of Scripture in the final unbelief of Christendom will be judged and condemned. Let us note further what a plain duty it is to read the Scriptures. Men have no right to expect spiritual light if they neglect the great treasury of all light. If even of the Old Testament our Lord said, Search, 
it testifies of me, how much more is it a duty to search the whole Bible? An idle neglect of the Bible is one secret of the ignorant, formal Christianity which is so widely prevalent in these latter days. God's blessing on a diligent study of the Scriptures is strikingly illustrated in the case of the Bereans. Acts chapter 17, verse 11. End of section 23. Section 24 of Expository Thoughts on the Gospel of St. John, Volume 1, by J. C. Ryle. Chapter 5, verses 40 to 47. The reason why many are lost, one principal cause of unbelief, Christ's testimony to Moses. John, chapter 5, verses 40 to 47. And ye will not come to me that ye might have life. I receive not honor from men, but I know you that ye have not the love of God in you. I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. If any other shall come in his own name, him ye will receive. How can ye believe, which receive honour one of another, and seek not the honour that cometh from God only? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuseth you, even Moses, in whom ye trust." For had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if ye believe not his writings, how shall ye believe my words? This passage concludes our Lord Jesus Christ's wondrous defense of his own divine mission. It is a conclusion worthy of the defense, full of heart-searching appeals to the consciences of his enemies, and rich in deep truths. A mighty sermon is followed by a mighty application. Let us mark, in this passage, the reason why many souls are lost. The Lord Jesus says to the unbelieving Jews, Ye will not come to me that ye may have life. These words are a golden sentence, which ought to be engraven in our memories, and treasured up in our minds. It is want of will to come to Christ for salvation, that will be found, at last, to have shut the many out of heaven. It is not men's sins. All manner of sins may be forgiven. It is not any decree of God. We are not told in the Bible of any whom God has only created to be destroyed. It is not any limit in Christ's work of redemption. He has paid a price sufficient for all mankind. It is something far more than this. It is man's own innate unwillingness to come to Christ, repent and believe, either from pride or laziness or love of sin or love of the world, the many have no mind, or wish, or heart, or desire to seek life in Christ. God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. 1 John chapter 5, verse 11. But men stand still, and will not stir hand or foot to get life. And this is the whole reason why many of the lost are not saved. This is a painful and solemn truth, but one that we can never know too well. It contains a first principle in Christian theology. Thousands in every age are constantly laboring to shift the blame of their condition from off themselves. They talk of their inability to change. They tell you complacently that they cannot help being what they are. They know, forsooth, that they are wrong, but they cannot be different. It will not do. Such talk will not stand the test of the word of Christ before us. 
the unconverted are what they are because they have no will to be better light is come into the world and men love darkness rather than light john chapter 3 verse 19 the words of the lord jesus will silence many i would have gathered you and ye would not be gathered matthew chapter 23 verse 37 let us mark secondly in this passage one principal cause of unbelief the lord jesus says to the jews how can ye believe which receive honour one of another and not seek the honour that cometh of god only he meant by that saying that they were not honest in their religion with all their apparent desire to hear and learn they cared more in reality for pleasing man than god in this state of mind they were never likely to believe a deep principle is contained in the saying of our lords and one that deserves special attention true faith does not depend merely on the state of man's head and understanding but on the state of his heart his mind may be convinced his conscience may be pricked but so long as there is anything the man is secretly loving more than god there will be no true faith the man himself may be puzzled and wonder why he does not believe he does not see that he is like a child sitting on the lid of his box and wishing to open it but not considering that his own weight keeps it shut let a man make sure that he honestly and really desires first the praise of god it is the want of an honest heart which makes many stick fast in their religion all their days and die at length without peace those who complain that they hear and approve and assent but make no progress and cannot get any hold on christ should ask themselves this simple question am i honest am i sincere do i really desire the first praise of god let us mark lastly in this passage the manner in which christ speaks of moses he says to the jews had ye believed moses ye would have believed me for he wrote of me these words demand our special attention in these later days that there really was such a person as moses that he really was the author of the writings commonly ascribed to him on both these points our lord's testimony is distinct he wrote of me can we suppose for a moment that our lord was only accommodating himself to the prejudices and traditions of his hearers and that he spoke of moses as a writer though he knew in his heart that moses never wrote at all such an idea is profane it would make out our lord to have been dishonest can we suppose for a moment that our lord was ignorant about moses and did not know the wonderful discoveries which learned men falsely so called have made in the nineteenth century such an idea is ridiculous blasphemy to imagine the lord jesus speaking ignorantly in such a chapter as the one before us is to strike at the root of all christianity there is but one conclusion about the matter there was such a person as moses the writings commonly ascribed to him were written by him the facts recorded in them are worthy of all credit our lord's testimony is an unanswerable argument the sceptical writers against moses and the pentateuch have greatly erred let us beware of handling the old testament irreverently and allowing our minds to doubt the truth of any part of it because of alleged difficulties the simple fact that the writers of the new testament continually refer to the old testament and speak even of the most miraculous events recorded in it as undoubtedly true should silence our doubts is it at all likely probable or credible 
that we of the nineteenth century are better informed about moses than jesus and his apostles god forbid that we should think so then let us stand fast and not doubt that every word in the old testament as well as in the new was given by inspiration of god notes john chapter five verses forty to forty seven verse forty and ye will not come to me life the connection between this verse and the preceding one is not very clear it is one of those abrupt elliptical transitions which occur frequently in st john's writings i conjecture the link must be something of this kind the scriptures testify plainly of me and yet in the face of this testimony ye have no will or inclination to come to me by faith that ye may have eternal life through me this verse evidently begins the third part of our lord's address to the jews he had declared the relation between himself and god the father he had brought forward the evidence of his own divine commission and his claim to be received as the messiah and now he concludes by a most heart-piercing appeal to the consciences of his enemies in which he exposes the true state of their hearts and the real reasons why they did not believe him if ever men were plainly dealt with and received home thrusts as to their own spiritual condition it was on this occasion in reading the conclusion of this chapter one cannot but feel that a miraculous restraint must have been put on our lord's enemies otherwise it is difficult to understand how they could have allowed him to bring such cutting and truthful charges against them if ministers desire a warrant for dealing plainly with their hearers and addressing them directly and personally about their sins they have only to look at their divine master's words in this passage the opening charge that our lord makes ye will not come to me misses much of its force in the english language it is not the future tense of come that is used in the greek two distinct verbs are employed the right meaning is ye do not will to come ye have no heart desire or inclination to come to me let it be noted here that one we are all by nature dead in sins that two spiritual life is laid up for sinners in christ alone he is the fountain of life that three in order to receive benefit from christ men must come to him by faith and believe believing is coming and finally four that the real reasons why men do not come to christ and consequently die in their sins is their want of will to come let it be carefully noted that both here and elsewhere the loss of man's soul is always attributed in scripture to man's own want of will to be saved it is not any decree of god it is not god's unwillingness to receive it is not any limitation of christ's redeeming work and atonement it is not any want of wide broad free full invitations to repent and believe it is simply and entirely man's own fault his want of will forever let us cleave to this doctrine man's salvation if saved is entirely of god man's ruin if lost is entirely of himself he loves darkness rather than light he will have his own way we should observe in this concluding part of our lord's address that he charges the jews with four distinct sins one want of real will to come to him two want of real love to god three undue desire of man's praise four want of real faith in moses's writings
Verse 41. I receive not honor from men. The connection between these words and the preceding verse is again not very clear. I conjecture that it must be as follows. I do not say these things as if I desired the praise and honor of man. I do not complain of your not coming to me, as if I only came into the world to seek man's praise. It is not on my own account that I mention your unbelief, but on yours, because it shows the state of your hearts. Do not suppose that I stand in need of followers, and am covetous of man's favor. Verse 42. But I know you, not the love of God, etc. The sense and connection here appears to be as follows. But the plain truth is, that I know and have long known the state of your hearts, and I know that you have no real love of God in you. You profess to worship the one true God, and to give Him honor, but you show by your conduct that with all your professions you do not really love God. To a Jewish hearer this tremendous charge must have been peculiarly galling. It was a charge that none but our Lord could make with equal decision, because He read men's hearts, and knew what was in them. The word, I know, is literally, I have known. Alfred paraphrases the sentence, By long trial and bearing with your manners these many generations, and personally also, I have known, and do know you. In another place we find our Lord naming this sin as one of the special sins of the Pharisees. Woe unto you, Pharisees! For ye tithe mint and rue, and all manner of herbs, and pass over judgment and the love of God. Luke chapter 11, verse 42. Ferris remarks that the incredulity of the Jews did not arise from want of evidence, but from want of love towards God. Verse 43. I am come in my Father's name, receive me not. This sentence contains a proof of the assertion made in the preceding verse, You show that you have no real love for God, by your not receiving me, who have come in my Father's name and desire nothing so much as his honor. If you really loved me and honored God as you professed to do, you would gladly receive and honor his Son. If another, in his own name, him ye will receive. In this sentence our Lord supposes a case to show the corrupt and carnal state of the Jews' hearts. If another public teacher shall appear, giving himself out to be some great one, not seeking God's honor, and doing all in God's name, but aiming to exalt himself and get honor to himself, you will receive and believe him. You reject me, the true Son of God. You are ready to receive any false pretender who comes among you, though he may give no honor to the God whom you profess to worship. It is true, then, that you have no real love of God in you. I believe decidedly that our Lord spoke these words prophetically. He had in view the many false Christs and false messiahs who arose within the first hundred years after his death, and by whom so many Jews were invariably deluded. According to Steer, no less than sixty-four false messiahs appeared to them, and were more or less believed. The readiness with which they believed these impostors is a remarkable historical fact, and a striking fulfillment of the words before us. They proved as forward to believe these pretenders to a divine mission, who came in their own names, as they had been backward to believe our Lord. I may add, however, that I am one of those who doubt whether the words of our Lord have even yet received their complete fulfillment. I think it highly probable that the world may yet see a personal Antichrist arise, 
who will succeed in obtaining credence from a vast portion of the Jewish nation. Then, and not till then, when Antichrist has appeared, this verse will be completely accomplished. Chrysostom, Cyril, Theophylact, Euthymius, Alcyon, Hyensius, take this view. Steer remarks, He of whom the Lord here prophesies is finally Antichrist, with his open and avowed denial of God and of Christ, with his most daring, I, before which all the proud will humbly bow down, because they will find themselves in him, and will honor him as their true God. As the Father reveals himself in Christ, so will Satan manifest himself in Antichrist, and give him all his work and witness, and all his own honor as the prince of this world, and the wicked will yield themselves to him, because through unbelief they have already fallen into his nature, and fitly belong to him. Wordsworth remarks, The fathers were generally of opinion, grounded on this passage, that Antichrist would be received by the Jews. Verse 44. How can ye believe, etc., etc.? This verse contains a very important principle. The substance of the meaning seems to be as follows. Our Lord tells the Jews that they were not likely to believe, so long as they cared more for the praise of man than the praise of God. The true cause of their unbelief was a want of honesty and godly sincerity. With all their professed zeal for God, they did not really care so much for pleasing Him as for pleasing man. In this state of mind they were never likely to have faith or to come to the knowledge of the truth. How can ye believe, receiving and seeking honor from one another, as ye do now? It is not possible that ye can believe until you cease from your present earthly-mindedness, and honestly desire God's praise more than man's. The great principle contained in this verse is the close connection between the state of a man's heart and his possessing the gift of faith. Believing or not believing, to have faith or not to have faith, is not a thing that depends only on a man's head being satisfied and his intellect convinced. It depends far more on the state of a man's heart. If a man is not thoroughly honest in his professed desire to find out the truth in religion, if he secretly cherishes any idol which he is resolved not to give up, if he privately cares for anything more than God's praise, he will go on to the end of his days doubting, perplexed, dissatisfied, and restless, and will never find the way to peace. His insincerity of heart is an insuperable barrier in the way of his believing. There is a mine of wisdom in the expression, an honest and good heart, Luke chapter 8, verse 15. For want of it, many a one complains that he cannot get comfort in religion, and cannot see his way towards heaven, when the truth is that his own dishonesty of heart is the cause. There is something he loves more than God. The consequence is that he never feels an honest will to believe. The can in this verse should be compared with the will in the fortieth verse. Ye cannot because ye will not. From God only. This expression would be more literally rendered, from the only God, the one true God, whom the Jews boasted that they alone knew and worshipped. Doddridge remarks that the whole verse has much more spirit in it if we consider it as applied to the members of the Sanhedrin who had such distinguished titles of honor than if we only take it as spoken to a mixed multitude. If, as many suppose, our Lord was making a formal defense of himself and his divine mission before the great ecclesiastical assembly of the Jews, 
his words in this verse would come home to his hearers with stinging power. Verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse, etc. We must not suppose that our Lord literally meant that there was any real likelihood of Moses or himself standing up to make a formal accusation against the Jews. What he did mean was, that not to believe him was not to believe Moses. There was no need for him to accuse them of unbelief. Moses himself, for whom they professed such respect, might be their accuser and prove them guilty. Even now, he says, Moses accuseth you. His writings, daily read in your synagogue, are constant witness of your unbelief. There may also, it is highly probable, be a reference here to the Song of Moses, where he predicts the unbelief of the people, and desires the book of the law to be put in the side of the ark, that it may be there for a witness against thee. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 26. Chimnidius remarks, What the Lord says to the Jews is exactly as if I were to say to the papists, it is not I, but the very fathers whose authority ye allege, in favor of your superstition, who accuse you of impiety. Or as if we were to say to the Pope, It is not we who accuse and condemn thee, but Christ himself, whose vicar thou callest thyself, and Peter, whose successor thou wilt have thyself, and Paul, whose sword thou pretendest to bear, they it is who will accuse thee. Beza makes much the same remark, and observes, that none will be more opposed to the Roman Catholics in the Judgment Day than the Virgin Mary and the saints in whom they profess to trust. The notion of some Romanists that the expression, Moses in whom ye trust, justifies the invocation of saints, and putting confidence in them as mediators, is, as Chimnidius observes, too weak and groundless to need refutation. Verse 46. For had ye believed Moses, me, these words are simply an amplification of the idea in the preceding verse. If the Jews had really believed Moses, they could not have helped believing Christ. The witness of Moses to Christ was so distinct, express, and unmistakable that true belief in his writings must inevitably have led them to belief in Christ. He wrote of me. These words are very remarkable. In what sense our Lord used them, we cannot exactly know. At the very least, we may conclude he meant that throughout the five books of Moses, by direct prophecy, by typical persons, by typical ceremonies, in many ways and in diverse manners, Moses had written of him. There is probably a depth of meaning in the Pentateuch that has never yet been fully fathomed. We shall probably find at the last day that Christ was in many a chapter and many a verse, and yet we knew it not. There is a fullness in all scripture far beyond our conception. Let us note carefully that our Lord distinctly speaks of Moses as a real person who, as a matter of history, lived and wrote books, and of his writings as true, genuine writings deserving of all credit and of undeniable authority. In the face of such an expression as this, it is a mournful fact that any man called a Christian can throw doubt on the existence of Moses, or on the authority of the books attributed to him. To say, as some have done, that our Lord was only accommodating himself to the conventional language of the times, and that he did not really mean to assert his own belief either in the existence of Moses or the authority of his writings, is to charge him with downright dishonesty. It represents him as one aiding and countenancing the dissemination of a lie. To say, as some have done, that our Lord, born of a Jewish woman and brought up among Jews, 
was not above the ignorant prejudices of the Jews, and did not really know that Moses ever existed, and that his writings are full of mistakes, is to talk downright blasphemy and nonsense. Fancy the eternal Son of God at any time talking ignorantly. Fancy above all that any trace of Jewish ignorance would be likely to be found in this chapter of St. John's Gospel, in which above all other chapters, perhaps, our Lord's divine knowledge is most strikingly brought out. Verse 47. If ye believe not his writings, etc. This verse is an extension of the thought contained in the preceding one, and a solemn and mournful conclusion of the whole address. There is evidently an intentional contrast between writings and words, as if our Lord would remind the Jews that writings are generally more relied upon than sayings. If ye do not really believe what your own honored lawgiver, Moses, wrote, and it is plain that you do not, it is not likely that you will believe what I say. If you have no real faith in the things written in your scriptures by that very Moses, for whom you profess such reverence, your favorite teacher and lawgiver, it is not to be wondered at that you will have no faith in what I say, and that I speak to you in vain. The Greek word used here for writings is very remarkable. It is generally translated letters, as in Luke chapter 23, verse 38. In Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, it is rendered scriptures. To my mind, it is a strong indirect evidence in favor of the verbal inspiration of scripture. There is a sense in which these words should ring painfully in the ears of all the modern assailants of the Mosaic writings. It is just as true now, I firmly believe, as it was eighteen hundred years ago. They cannot divide Moses and Christ. If they do not believe the one, they will find sooner or later that they do not believe the other. If they begin with casting off Moses and not believing his writings, they will find in the end that to be consistent they must cast off Christ. If they will not have the Old Testament, they will discover at last that they cannot have the new. The two are so linked together that they cannot be separated. What God hath joined together let no man put asunder. In concluding the notes on this wonderful chapter, one would like to know how this marvelous address was received by those who heard it. But here we meet with one of the peculiar silences of Scripture. Not one word is written to tell us what the Jews of Jerusalem thought of our Lord's argument, or what effect it had upon them. Our own duty is clear. Let us take heed that it has some effect on ourselves. The amazing fullness of our Lord's teaching appears most strikingly in the address contained in this chapter. Within the short span of twenty-nine verses we find no less than eleven mighty subjects brought forward. 1. The intimate relation of the Father and the Son. 2. The divine commission and dignity of the Son. 3. The privileges of the man who believes. 4. The quickening of the spiritually dead. 5. The judgment. 6. The resurrection of the body. 7. The value of miracles. 8. The scriptures. 9. The corruption of man's will, the secret of man's ruin. 10. The love of man's praise, the cause of unbelief. 11. The importance of the writings of Moses. End of section 24